Ladies and gentlemen, it's now time for Sharing in Recovery with Mr. Jack Kropp. Hi, I'm Jack Kropp, and this is Sharing Recovery Radio. We'd like to welcome you all to the second season. We're here to spread the message that recovery is possible. And to that end, we have guests come on our show. They'll talk about their lives, what it was like, how they ended up in addiction, and what their life is like in recovery. And anybody that wants help can call us. We'll help anyone. Our whole mission here is to help people find recovery. And as I say that, I will tell you that today's guest is probably one of the hardest working people in the recovery world. She does more for people than anybody I know. Our guest today is attorney Lori Besden, who's the executive director of Lawyers Concerned for Lawyers. And we have a, a special guest with us also, her mom, Bobby Besden. And we're gonna, Bobby's going to help us understand what life was like because not, not everybody that's in addiction comes from a broken home or under a bridge. I mean, Lori had a pretty nice life and somehow ended up with problems. And we want to. We want people to understand that addiction affects everyone, all all walks of life. So welcome, Lori, and welcome, Bobby, to our show. Thank you, and thank you, thank you, thank you both for being here. And and Bobby, I'd like to start with you and see if we can set a foundation. What what was life like when Lori was growing up? I mean, it was. I'm, well, we we lived in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Um, we were very, very fortunate. We had, you know, I, I considered us to not to be struggling for money and, and for things that we needed. The children both went to overnight camp. We had, my parents bought a beach house down in Margate City that we still have. And so we really, I, I felt were kind of affluent as the children were growing up. Um, Laurie, <clears throat> uh, Laurie had some difficulties when she was younger and she proved to, to um, be difficult in in certain ways let me give you let me give you an example of of one of the ways that i was thinking um one of her um one of her teachers called me from school and said that they were very concerned about her self-esteem i went to school and we sat down and we talked and the teacher said that that laurie was standing against this wall in the in outside in the playground and the teacher went over to Laurie and said you shouldn't be standing on that wall that wall was for children who have made mistakes and done bad things during the day you shouldn't be standing on that wall and for a week after that the teachers could not get her off the wall so that was the kind of attention getting thing that that Laurie did um when she was younger and I, I took her to the dentist, the dentist gave her uh, nitrous oxide. And Laurie credits that for the very beginning of, of the feeling that she had when she was out of control on, on substances outside of her own body. And so, um, you know, that, that was pretty much as we were growing as we were growing up but um 
then as 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 things happen in your lives um my husband and and i separated approximately to uh, 1999 2000 and we finally did get a divorce um i moved to philadelphia bought myself a house and he lived uh, in plymouth meeting with laurie and uh laurie distanced herself from me so that i um I didn't actually see her on a day-to-day basis, but when I saw flashes of her, I was I was very concerned. I saw that that this was a normal, healthy woman who looked emaciated to me. Um, uh, her her dad is um, less observant than I am, and so uh, living in the house with him made made whatever she was doing easier for her um i was very very concerned and i my assumption was since drugs were never a part of our lives that obviously she must have some kind of an eating disorder and so i was positive that i was on top of that and i took her to an eating disorder clinic how old was Lori then um i'm not ex- i'm i don't exactly about 24 25 okay about 24 25 at that time and Lori, were you using drugs at that time i was i used and abused pain pills for several years then in 2000 enter cocaine and that's when it became noticeable to people when I was just just on pain pills, taking upwards of 55 of them a day to function. Um, nobody noticed anything, including clerking on the Superior Court in Pennsylvania, because that was my normal, and I needed that. Like people need oxygen. But All right. so let me interrupt you for one second. You're saying you were clerking on the Supreme Court. So what you're telling me is you graduated Superior from high Court. school, graduated from college, graduated mm-hmm. from law school, and the whole time you were eating pain pillars. Um, I, the, the addiction truly started in the, um, addiction form, I will say car accident in law school was not the first time I had pain pills, but it was the first time I went to an emergency room, had a semi-legitimate injury, third year of law school, went from a car accident, gave me 20 to 30 pain pills, and I was off to the races. Um, and I thought I was immune because of the life I grew up you know, grew up in that I could not become addicted. So, you know, by the time. So there was a stigma to addiction in your mind. Absolutely. People that came from your socioeconomic background didn't get addicted. I say it every time I speak. My perception of a drug addict was a guy with long hair and a Metallica shirt. And when I was coming back from a Pearl Jam concert, not a Metallica concert, that's when the car accident happened. All right. So in my case, being an alcoholic, mm-hmm. I always thought that the guy with the brown bag and the trench coat that was dirty on the corner was the alcoholic. Right. I didn't believe that I could be an alcoholic. Right. You know, we owned our, I owned a large landscaping company. We had a nice house. You know, we, we had all the material things there were in this world, but I drank three quarts of vodka every day. But I didn't think I was an alcoholic. So, Lori, at what point did it become a problem that had to be addressed? Um, I would say almost immediately. I, and I, again, I was the last person to get the memo that I had a drug problem. Um, Inevitably, 
passed two bar exams, pain pills, continued, clerked on the Superior Court in Philadelphia for a former Supreme Court justice, drugs delivered to chambers, signature required, uh, still thought I could stop and I had control. And when my drug supply in Texas ran out, I started calling in the prescriptions myself. Well, stop, stop. What do you mean you called in prescriptions? How do you call in prescriptions yourself? You aren't a doctor, too, are you? No, I'm certainly not a doctor. (laughs) How are you calling in your own prescriptions? (laughs) Not trying to make light of any of this. I'm obviously not a doctor. I just played one on TV. No. Um, I just, we we had pharmacy uh, tech books at my house. My sister is a doctor. Um, There were medical books. And so I, I, at the time, figured it out. Now, of course, the prescribing guidelines and restrictions are totally different. You couldn't really do something like that now. But at the time, anything control three... Um, schedule three and lower could be called in. So once my online uh, doctor in Texas supplier run out and I had nine identities going, 100 pain pills per prescription, I had a 40 pain pill day habit, and then I was out of drugs. So that's when I started calling my own prescriptions in, in quantities of 100 with four refills because that's what I was used to getting. And so um, that clerkship was one year. Um, and I'd added Ambien and Xanax to the mix because I figured out how to. Every minute I was awake, I was under the influence of something, but still 100% thought I could stop at any time if I wanted to. Then, unfortunately, I had another clerkship lined up on the municipal court um, with three judges in Philadelphia. friend of mine, we got together, um, and she pulled out cocaine, and I still to this day like say it and I can't even believe it was such a huge part of my life. I tried it and I did not put the drug down until my freedom was taken from me. So what was your original question? At what point did I think I needed help? Right. Five arrests in, 29 car accidents, three incarcerations. Wait, stop again. No, I, no, no, I, I know. But 29 I, but the, car accidents. 29 car accidents. Have, wow. Some of which I did not even have a driver's license for and I would pay people for their damage. Um, and cash advance on credit cards, um, you know, to get through that without getting reported. But to answer your question, all of these consequences, and in my heart of hearts, even six months into a jail sentence, I still thought if I just went to a different pharmacy, because inevitably I was arrested for pharmaceutical fraud, if I just went to a different pharmacy, I would have been fine. truly believed I could have stopped. So at what point did I really think I had a problem? Maybe six months after I was sitting in jail. Maybe. All right. So here it is. You are a licensed attorney in the state of Pennsylvania. And New Jersey. And New Jersey. And you're writing your own prescriptions. Calling them in. All right. Well, you're calling them in. Mm -hmm. And you're going to work every day in the court. Correct. Okay. And that's pretty astonishing. I I mean, I've heard a lot of stories. Well, you know, Randy Grimes told me he played NFL games after taking a lot, a lot of painkillers and could play whole games in blackouts. Mm-hmm. I thought that was astonishing. You telling me that you were calling in your own prescriptions and then going to court and work. That's pretty amazing. That's astonishing. So you've mentioned you, you kind of slipped in jail two or three times. How did you end up in jail? Um, so... Like I said, five arrests, four in Pennsylvania, one in New Jersey, all for prescription fraud except for one. Uh, The prescription fraud are all felonies. Um, January 29th, 2004, that was my last 
arrest. Um, and that is the day that I was literally, as a result of that arrest that day, sentenced to the option of a new life. So I was on probation and Judge Carpenter, who now I have so much love for that man, I could cry just talking about him. Um, but at the time, I didn't consider him my friend. <laughs> or our friend. Or our friend. Uh, we actually recently reenacted my sentencing for a continuing legal education program with Judge Carpenter and all the original um, individuals in the courtroom, which had happened. But um, at that point, I had violated probation. I was, you know, released to see how I did for six months, not so well. And so January 29, 2004, I was arrested, and that's when my whole new life began. All right, prior to January 29th, had you tried to stop drugs on your own, Laura? I can't really say. Rehabs? You went to different rehabs? Okay, so that's kind of where, and I appreciate you saying that, but that's kind of where, like, the parent perspective versus... I was court ordered to one rehab um, and with the utmost of respect to our judicial system, um, I was just that sick of an individual. I sewed pills in the pillow. I drove my own car. I left against medical advice and took somebody with me. Um, so, and the one rehab, the first rehab I went to when I was there for seven days, um, I went because you and dad found out somebody discovered drugs or I got arrested. And so I went to, you know, cure myself so this family emergency would go away. So I would not say, um, no, I would not say. And my motives were never good. How many times did you go to rehab? Three rehabs total. The last rehab I went, I was inevitably incarcerated 11 and a half, month, 11 and a half months in Montgomery County Correctional Facility. So went in January 29, 2004, which is my sobriety date. Um, and after I served 350 nights there, then my family, along with Dave Farrell, who was huge part of my story, um, worked out an agreement that I would go to the care and treatment centers for a month. So I went to my last facility as almost at a year clean and sober, if you want to term that. But I do count jail time because I was clean and sober. All right, so at one point you had to call home and say, Mom, I'm locked up. Uh, well, I was living with my dad at that point, um, and he was really kind and gracious. Like, he, everything he did, he did out of love. So he literally would like keep secrets from my mom and not tell her I kept getting arrested. And he really believed he could like love my way out of this. Like he really believed that. So, um, you know, I, what was your question? I apologize. No, I, I asked you if at one point did you call mom and say I'm locked up? No, but my dad inevitably called her the last and final. I was in jail three times. Uh, one was for DUI 48 hours. Another one was for three weeks when Judge Carpenter let my family pay for me to go to rehab which is when i brought drugs in and called scripts in for other people that were leaving from and then rehab? yeah from you were the calling payphone. you were calling scripts in for other people as they on were leaving. their way out of rehab yes terrible okay. i mean um so yeah all right so mom now Lori's locked up Yes. You ran right over to visit her and tell her everything will be okay? No, as a matter of fact, I, I actually did not. I was I was just, I was so shocked. And I had told you that Laurie, when, when things aren't right, she distances herself from me. And so 
we had been apart for a while. And and even though I, I tried to reach out, she really was not interested. So when my ex-husband called and told me that she was incarcerated, uh, I think that I, I think I took two or three weeks before I actually went to see her. Uh, we're going to take a break now. And, okay. And when we come back, we're going to talk about life after addiction. And that's the most important part of this show, recovery. We want to talk about how wonderful life is. I'm Jack, and we're back with this next segment here of Sharing Recovery Radio. And before we start, there's somebody Lori needs to say happy birthday to. Oh, I wanted to say happy birthday to Janessa Undercoffler, who I work with at LCL, and she's our helpline manager and one of the kindest, most gracious human beings. And she literally is on the front line, just like all the LCL staff, saving lives day in, night in, day out night out so happy happy birthday janessa happy birthday janessa happy birthday janessa all right so now let's talk about this so you go to jail you did 11 and a half months and then you go back to rehab all right so you finish your stint in rehab now what happens how did you end up here i mean how did it get so right from so wrong Laura? i mean i kind of have to back up because i would not um, do the story any justice without talking about a couple people along the lines. So um, everything happened, like I said, Judge Carpenter, William Carpenter in Montgomery County was my sentencing judge. Um, and he basically had had it with me. And, you know, we thought we could like basically buy our way out of jail. If my family could, they tried. Um, and I say this all the time. He literally gave us the one gift my family could not buy, and that was time. Um, and he literally saved my life. So he gave me the opportunity of 11 and a half months without drugs. If it were any shorter, I don't know what would have happened, but I don't think I'd be where I am today. Simultaneous to his option to give me a new life, the day I was arrested, January 29th, 2004, um, as I was getting arrested at my dad's house, the phone rang, um, and it was later pieced together to me because that day I was coming off of 55 pain pills a day, $2,000 of cocaine a week, Ambien and Xanax. So I don't really remember the conversation, but the detective told the person, you can call um, her at the police station, we'll let you talk to her. I went to the police station, and it turned out to be um, an attorney, Dave Farrell, who's out of Montgomery County, and the founder of Lawyers Concerned for Lawyers, which is where I work now, um, had contacted Dave, who is a, an LCL volunteer, 31 years clean and sober at the time. Now he's got 44. And said, there's an attorney in Montgomery County and need you to find her and reach out to her. That was the phone call that happened as I was getting arrested. Then I went to the police station, typed my own statement because I did things like that put me in the holding cell and um, the detective gave me the phone and it was Dave. And he said, all I remember him saying was, I'm gonna come to see you in the jail today. I'm a volunteer with LCL. Actually, I really thought he was calling to tell me he was representing me. I did not really connect what he was saying. And later that day he came to the jail to see me. So me meeting him, literally he said, you know, here's recovery literature for narcotics and alcohol read these, go to meetings while you're here. 
we're gonna I'm gonna support you through your process and I thought well like who sent this guy like who is paying him to be here he would not represent me criminally because he wanted to be able to serve and help me in a supportive way and so his leadership and mentoring is and Judge Carpenter saving my life is a hundred percent the reason that I'm here today um, Dave testified at my sentencing broke his anonymity in the courthouse in which he practices um, later was instrumental in getting me a job as a paralegal while I got my law license reinstated in Pennsylvania and New Jersey you had your law license taken away at one point I did uh, Dave again I would never have thought someone that was in could apply for reinstatement um, if I did not meet him never in a million years because my childhood dream and still one of my secret dreams is to go to cosmetology school but now I need a governor's pardon to do that which is pending so wait, wait. <laughs> all right you, you, you know you think say things so quickly maybe I know, people, I'm gonna get through a you line can, you can be a lawyer but you can't be a cosmetologist that is correct it's a state-issued license and as a felon um, I I would have some issues so I um, that's not why I filed the clemency petition but that um, you know could be a benefit if it is granted so anyway so then I filed for you know I I let the disciplinary board know what happened Dave said just write them a letter and I did sorry I was arrested you know missed the 30-day reporting requirement by four years arrested five times jail rehab so we entered a three-year suspension in Pennsylvania New Jersey I worked at a law firm that Dave was I want to say instrumental he's the reason I got the job um, and worked there through my entire suspension and then it was him on you know the front line saying let's file for reinstatement and I said like who's gonna think that this is a good idea so we did we filed for reinstatement in Pennsylvania um, the hearing committee members heard us you testified for right, me that's correct um, and it was a long hearing that day Dave testified it was like um, seven hours right seven it hours a it was day. a long long hearing and inevitably um through obviously a power much greater than myself um, i was unanimously re recommended to be reinstated uh to the practice of law in pennsylvania and then new jersey followed suit amazing it is now you just said something you said a power greater than yourself mm -hmm. all right so that that is the whole premise of my recovery that there is a power greater than myself that has guided me through the things I've done and, and I've done a lot of things I'm not proud of I've done a lot of things that most people couldn't have survived but somehow somewhere there was a power that wanted me to go through that I believe that I had to travel the road I traveled mm -hmm. I had to go through everything I went through everything I put my family through it all had to occur to get me to this spot that I'm in today and I truly believe that and so those of you that are listening know that Lori and I have been friends for about a year and and we didn't start out on a real good foot I mean um, <laughs> there was a local attorney that suggested I speak to Lori about being on this show and Lori's first reaction was abrasive <laughs> and that's very and, kind, and that's okay Jack. because God I truly believe God introduced Lorena and 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 that's what has to happen we have to share what we have gone through to help others recover and that's what I want to talk about now Lori. your life now is basically helping others and and please don't deny it please don't downplay it because 24 hours a day seven days a week you're helping people so what do you do today Laura what 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 is LCL and and what is your role first of all not to turn the tables 
You know, this is my show, Laura. I understand. You're the guest. Listen, we have control issues. <laughs> you help people 24 hours a day. Um, and it's meeting people like you that inspires me to do what I do. And that, and that is a true statement. I'm not just trying to be kind because we're on the air. Anybody that knows either of us knows our dedication. Um, and I, I just have to say, I 100% agree with your statement. I bring meetings to the, to the prisons. And I say every single time I'm there, don't put your head down with shame. Every drink, drug, crime, arrest, lie, necessary to get you to where you are now. Um, I, I often say I wouldn't change anything. I mean, obviously, I'd like to change the felon status, which is pending. Um, but without those felonies, you're dead. Without, <laughs> without being a convicted felon right. and going to jail. You're no, dead. no, no, absolutely. So, I, but as right. far as the actual story of I would not, sure, did I think sitting in jail for a year was, a, was great at the time? No. But now when I go and take meetings to the prison and I say, you don't know how lucky you are. This is a reset button. I needed the reset button. I was there for a year. Like, I needed the reset button. I spent 20 months in prison. Right. And, and you know, I, I used to call a friend of ours. Every day when I was in federal prison, I'd call him every day, and I, and I, I literally would be crying. Because I, I can cry if you say hello to me. And, and I would cry, and I'd say, why am I here? And he'd say, find gratitude. And he'd hang up. And I would stand there and curse at the phone for about five minutes and then go back to the cell and think about gratitude. So, yeah, we had to go through those things. Mm -hmm. and, and, and in September, God willing, I'll be sober 20 years. It's amazing. Now, it's what is amazing is that the first 10 years, I did nothing but not drink. I didn't participate in a program of recovery, it, and that's okay because that's my road. That's my journey. I hear newcomers today, and they're, they're like, running off, and it sounds like they're the, the history of recovery after three weeks, and that wasn't me. It took me a long time to get to the point where I finally understood that the message is help others. Mm -hmm. You know, Dr. Bob wrote a prescription, trust God, clean house, and help mm -hmm. others. That's how simple recovery is for mm -hmm. me. So helping others is the mission, and you do that. You, you do that every day. So <clears throat> tell me more about LCL because that I'm intrigued by what by what LCL does and and how you came to LCL. How did you get there? From you're a convicted okay. felon, you have no job, obviously, when you walk out of jail. Okay. Um, well, let me first just give a little information, just for anyone that's listening that may not know what LCL stands for. Lawyers Concerned for Lawyers, um, created and born in 1988, and since that date, we've helped over 8,000 attorneys, judges, their family members, and law students struggling with substance use mental health disorders. We receive our funding through the annual license fee that each attorney pays for the privilege to practice law. Half of our funding comes from the disciplinary board, and half of it comes from Lawyers Fund for Client Security. Hopefully, and with them funding us, the hope is that we can obviate claims from hitting their office and we can help these folks before it becomes an issue in front of either of them. Um, the most important thing I can say is we're 24-7. Uh, and we also are, you know, we're 24-7. We're out there on the front lines. Um, and in the it, trenches. And it's important to know, and I say this all the time, you know, if you know someone that's struggling, you wouldn't walk by somebody that is drowning and say, eh, I hope you do better. I'm going to monitor things, you know, um, just to give some stats as far as, you know, I can give in the legal profession. So why is there a lawyers and judges assistance program? 
2016, um, the American Bar Association released the results from a survey uh, that was conducted 12,825 active practicing attorneys, and the results were astounding. 28% screened positive for depressive symptoms. Compare that with the general population, 7 to 9%. 20% screened positive for major depression. One in five active practicing compared to seven to nine percent of the general population. Nineteen percent substance use disorder compared to ten to fifteen percent general population, depending where you get your stats. The legal profession fourth highest rate of suicide behind doctors, dentists, and pharmacists. So that there's where the need um, was born, and thanks to our stable funding, we've been able to provide resources and support for the legal profession. All right. We're going to take a break now, and we'll be back, and we've got some more things we need to talk about. All right, we're back, and um, my phone number is 570-881-5825. Anybody that's listening to this show, if you want help, call me when the show's over. If you're a family member that has a loved one that needs help, call me when the show's over. I will help anyone that reaches out to me. Now, before we start this next segment, Carly, can you uh, see the dogs? Yeah. Lori's dogs are with us today, Gracie and Maisie. Come here. And they are two of the most wonderful animals you can ever meet. Gracie and Maisie. And, in fact... Maisie does goes to memory care about three times a week to help people in a nursing home. Tell us about that a little bit, Laura. So I um, take her to the dementia unit at the assisted living facility near my house, and she just literally brightens up everyone's day and brings love and joy. And uh, on my list, if this clemency petition is granted, um, is to have her certified as a therapy dog. Both of these puppies come to work with me, and uh, Maisie travels along to some of the CLE presentations, Philadelphia Court of Common Pleas, right. and other ones where she's requested. Soon, Dolphin County Bar Association coming up. So she uh, she's has, you know, she travels. <laughs> and I love the dogs. All right, so I asked you a question which didn't get answered yet. Um, how did you end up at LCL? Okay, so like I mentioned in my story, um, Dave Farrell was contacted by the founder, John Carroll, when I was going through everything in January of 04. Dave contacted me. That is how LCL came to me. When I heard about it in law school, in one ear, out the other. Um, Once I got out of treatment um, in 2005, Dave set me, you know, help, was instrumental in finding me a job where I could work as a paralegal. And then he encouraged me to become a volunteer with LCL, whether somebody liked nitrous, ecstasy, cocaine, pain pills, alcohol, whatever it was, I had some issues and I could help some folks. So I started volunteering with LCL. Then once I got reinstated um, in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, um, in 2011, I came on board as deputy director and worked under the amazing Ken Hagreen, um, our only executive director prior to myself and had the honor and privilege of working with him for until 2015 when he retired and at that point then I became the executive director of lawyers concerned for lawyers because quite frankly I am the product that we sell 
um, you know. Recovery. Right. I mean, and And there's always hope. Don't give up five minutes before the miracle. They're all true. I mean. Exactly. I mean, that's my story is different than yours. I I had pressure from my family to stop drinking. And, And when I say pressure, it was get help or get out. For one moment that day, I had one moment of clarity and I went to a recovery meeting and I haven't had a drink since. So on Thursday, I drank three quarts of vodka. Friday at noontime, I go to this meeting, and I've never had another drink. Well, that's not me. That's God. But not everybody takes that path. Some people have to take the path that Lori takes, and there are other people that take even that struggle more. The point of this show is, and the point of us sharing our stories, is to tell people they can recover. It doesn't matter how many times you've slipped. It doesn't matter how many times you've tried recovery. It doesn't matter how many times you've been to a rehab. If you want to keep trying, at some point you will get recovery. And and that's that is there is hope for everyone. One of the issues that we have in today's society is the stigma of addiction. So many people are afraid to stand up and say, I've got a problem. So many families want to hide things. You know, I grew up in an Irish Catholic family, and the, and the mantra of the, of the life was, don't talk about it. Go close the door, hide this, don't talk about it. Was it like that in your house, Bobby? We- Laurie's nodding her head yes. Um, I, I always kind of felt that, um, that we would try to fix things. We would, we ourselves, we would send her to a rehab and they would cure be me. able to cure her. Yeah. Um, I mean, this was the mentality because I had no association my entire life with drugs and did not understand the pull and the desire to, to continue them until I actually read a letter which is called A Letter from Your Addiction that Laurie had given to me. And it wasn't until I read that letter that said that I will be with you until the end. I will not be satisfied until you are dead. That I understood that this isn't something that it's not a diet that you can just stop and then hope that it, that it's okay. This is something that you need to do for the rest of your life. And you need to find a way to do that. It's far more serious than anything else. Right. In recovery, if, if you stop working at recovery... Your disease takes over. Right. And and the disease is waiting. The disease is waiting for you to say, I don't need a meeting today. The disease is waiting for you to say, I don't need to help anyone else today. The disease wants you to think about you, to be totally obsessed with yourself, and then the disease has you. And once the disease has you, then it's only a matter of time before you relapse. And, and relapse happens. There's no doubt about it. Um, I have a very... Uh, it's Carly, and, and Carly, of course, is 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 in recovery, and but she had to do it her way. She had to go to rehab twice. She had to go to a program in Maine and spend seven or eight months in Maine in a long-term structured program. That was her road to recovery. But people can recover. Right now, now once now we're in recovery, we're working at it. But recovery is not your whole life, is it, Laura? There is life after uh, oh, alongside absolutely. recovery. Absolutely. I mean, I 
you're going to open up a whole box. <laughs> How well, long do you well, I, I mean, want I people to talk... understand that we just don't go to, we don't, it's not like get up, go to work, go to a recovery meeting and do it over again. No, 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 you no. You cram no, a lot I mean, of life in every day. Right. No, I mean, I, um, as a direct result of being a person in recovery, am able to do all of the other things I do, such as um, I volunteer at the Humane Society in Harrisburg as a dog walker. Um, I take that very seriously. I love animals. I, in 2013, tested um, to donate a kidney to a colleague, uh, went as far as pre-admission testing on a June 3rd, 2013 surgery date at Hershey, uh, went through a series of events. She ended up getting the kidney from someone on life support um, that was passing away. Uh, so many things. I presented with my sentencing judge. I gave him my 10-year medallion. I think one of the greatest... Um, rewards of recovery is repairing relationships. Um, I've had my best friend, Kathleen, who I met in college, I mean, stuck with me. She's not a person in recovery, stuck with me like through everything. Um, and still today is my best friend. And just the relationships, I, you know, the parole and probation department at the time. And I thought, oh my God, here they come in with their parole jackets into my law firm to, not my law firm, I didn't own it, but to get urine samples, how embarrassing. And Renee and Lynn are two of my closest friends. Um, I just saw Lynn two weeks ago for her birthday, you know, rode my bike to Ocean City to see her, you know, and truly somebody I consider a friend. How about the district attorney that prosecuted my case in Montgomery County, the final case, she wanted state time. Um, and her name's Stephanie. I won't say her last name. She's now with the FBI, but now literally went out to dinner with her last year, not a couple months ago, actually with Kathleen when I was in DC. Um, and then later, you know, we've maintained contact. She was part of the reenactment of my sentencing and later in the mail, I receive a canvas and I'm thinking, who is this from? It's not, it's a canvas of a pit bull no note, no nothing. And I, you know, and just out of the kindness of her heart, the district attorney that sent me to jail and saved my life, years later, sending me gifts just from her heart. You know, and I think, and Dave Farrell, I mean, he's another one. Totally changed the course of my life, saved my life. But well, you, you also pay it forward every single day in every single way. And that's, that's something that's just a part of you that you don't even think about. It's just something that you do. Reaching out to anybody that needs, that needs support and help, whether it's, it's through addiction or it's just a personal problem all the time. Paying it forward is part of our lives. It's interesting. I sit here. Um, my mom recently reached out to a mother whose daughter went to jail, and that came through one of my... Um, friends that's uh in the judicial system his wife was representing somebody and my mom just out of the kindness for her reached out to the family and now speaks to that mom to get her through her daughter going to prison for a year um you know and i learned paying it forward from other people we know how lucky we are and you know a, a good friend of mine once said you know anything we have in life and i know you live the same way is all on loan for us to find the best use for it so we're going to take one break and the last break and then when we come back we'll just close this up so. all right we're back and um 
it's a real shame that the listening audience can't hear the conversation that goes on here in the studio <laughs> in between se segments because Lori just you. informed us that her mom uh, didn't want people to know she was in jail. She told people that she was backpacking in Europe for a year. <laughs> so that's the stigma we talk about. That That is... The, the stigma of addiction that Bobby didn't want anybody to know that her daughter, this can't happen. And, you know, and, and Bobby was a principal in the Philadelphia school system. And, you know, she doesn't, she, this doesn't happen to her family. The fact of the matter is it happens to any family, you know, growing, you know, as I started to raise my family, would, would I have believed that my own daughter would would find a, a way to addiction? No. How would she do that? She has seen what happens when your father's a drunk. You lose your house, you lose your business, you lose everything. You know, Carly it ended up being basically homeless because we got thrown out of our house. And her sisters and her mother. I mean, not just Carly, the whole family got thrown out of the house. So, yeah, that's that stigma. Let's not tell anybody what's right. going on. The fact of the matter is if you tell somebody what's going on, you have a better chance at recovering. To that end, if you want help, call me, 570-881-5825. All right, we've got a few minutes left here, Lori. Tell us about what's coming up. Like, what's new? What's a, what's emerging? Because recovery is always changing. Okay, so, and can I step back for 30 seconds before I answer you, that? <laughs> we know you're going to do whatever you want. So. <laughs> so you had asked about the paying it forward, and I think it's so important to talk about this because um, in recovery, we can only keep what we have by giving it away. And so, yeah, we help people. We help friends, family, anyone that reaches out. But I think it's important to say being of service in the fellowships is very important. I'm the grapevine rep for my um alcohol home group i also bring meetings to the prison i have a sponsor um, and also i serve as the treasurer for the lawyers alcohol association we'll just put it that way um, people trust you with money today or isn't that amazing i couldn't i wasn't able to go to canada um, and travel there because of my felon status however hopefully soon to be changed i was not able to attend that conference but um Hopefully soon that will change. So I want to talk really um, briefly. I don't know how much time we have left. So you asked what's new um, as far as lawyers concerned for lawyers. I am thrilled to announce that the chairman of the Pennsylvania Disciplinary Board, Doug Leonard, has is in the final stages of creating a Pennsylvania task force on well-being. Um, he was appointed as a task force member of the national task force. And there's a real push on everybody taking care of themselves and being mindful. And we have several verticals. LCL is part of the vertical. The judicial system is part of the vertical. Um, key players from all the law schools in Pennsylvania, all nine law schools, CLE providers. So we can educate people and let them know it's so important to take care of themselves. There was an article, and I have to give Bree, uh, the Texas uh, Lawyers Assistance Program director, credit for this article um, that came out from Duke Law, and she reprinted it. Five key, really easy things to take care of yourself and your well-being. Gratitude list. If you jot down a few things a week that you're grateful for, 25% increase in your happiness level. Also, meditation, self-compassion, volunteering and being of service to other people, and the last one mentioned in that article is humor. 
So we're all going to join forces to, you know, have the push be on well-being and taking care of yourself. But like Jack said, if you find yourself in a position, you're struggling, trust me, you're not struggling alone. I was literally snorting cocaine off a rug and there was actually no cocaine on the rug. There's always hope for people. Don't give up five minutes before the miracle. The truth is, I say it every time at the prisons, the recovery rate for recovery, the rate for recovery, 100%. 100% of those that want it can have it. Right. I mean, people ask me all the time. I deal with families on a daily mm-hmm. basis. And their first question is, is my kid going to be okay? Is my kid going to be cured? You know, is this the right treatment center that you're sending us to? Or are we going to be okay? And the answer is always the same. The only way it's going to be okay is if you want to recover. Mm-hmm. Now, to that end, if you want to recover, then you ha- you can't do it alone. The, this is a we program that I'm in. You know, we recover. We work together. And, and Lori and I uh, go back and forth helping people. You know, Lori will call me and say, what about this? And I, called, I just called Lori's office the other day and said, here's a situation. Can you please help me? And the answer was yes. The answer is never no. The answer is, oh, no, that's too much trouble. Or that's the answer is always yes. So if you're out there and you're struggling and you want help, don't be afraid to ask because nobody ever is going to say no to you. The answer is always going to be yes, I want to help you. And, and that's how we have recovered. You know, Loria celebrated 14 years in, in January. And, you know, that's amazing to go from snorting Coke and eating pills and writing your own prescriptions to being clean and sober for 14 years. Th- that's just amazing. So now we've got about a minute left, Bobby. Tell us what like life is like now with Lori. Oh, life, life life is, is because obviously you're li- back together. You were separated. Lori, Lori, and I are very very close. Could probably not be closer. I don't believe that there is anything in the world that she wouldn't do for me, and I I feel exactly the same way about her. And I've taken lessons from everything that's happened, and I give back. I try to give back all the time to to as many people as I possibly can, you know. As a family, you have recovered. Yes. Lori has recovered, and as a family, you have recovered. Yes. And life is wonderful. Because of Lori's recovery. Okay, that's it. The music is on. We're done. Thanks. This has been a fabulous show. Thank you guys for coming here today. Thank you so much for for inviting us. us.